Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. These are difficult days for project managers. Impediments and slowdowns, resistance and friction are put into your daily design and construction activities in forms that we didn't have to think about in the past. Our problems are ongoing and multifaceted, from the limitations of the availability of products and ongoing material and supplier issues, to the continuing difficulties in finding labor, and God forbid, depending upon talented, reliable individuals. This has all changed the way that we need to orient ourselves to our daily activity on and off the project site. When you mix in the fact that we are operating in a moderately strong economy and subcontractors are difficult enough to coordinate in the best of circumstances, only to be completely missing in action in recent times, this only compounds the ongoing problems for the successful and proactive project manager. Keeping in mind that we're focused here on custom home design-build projects, where the design-build contractor is coordinating her own schedule, how can we organize our thinking around project management and choreograph our work to a point where our projects are running smoothly and we're experiencing a minimum of stress, and so that we can focus more on our creativity and our personal time with family and friends? I think it boils down to automation of some of the tasks that are repeated, the use of templates for common recurring correspondence, a certain type of careful but simple personal organization, and a tight and easily amended calendar of activity. Let's talk a bit about it and what it takes to plan a successful project before it gets underway. First off, I'm going to punctuate this podcast with three short, well, maybe tall tales of my own foibles as a project manager. Looking at the arc of my career, I've designed and managed thousands of individual residential landscape projects. So yes, I've certainly screwed up a few, stood fast when I didn't, and stepped into the breach to take responsibility when I did. I can relate many more than these three, unfortunately, but in the interest of brevity and not embarrassing myself too much, each of these taught me something valuable in the midst of all the acrimony. Let's start with a mistake we made and how it was handled. Years ago, I had a client that was a wine merchant. I found him to be a bit disconnected and arrogant during our negotiations, but that in itself is only a pink flag. When you're doing high-end or celebrity work, you might need a separate dump truck sometimes just to handle the weight of the client's ego. Our assignment then was to renovate the backyard area, and he'd commissioned a deck to be done by a separate deck contractor at the same time. During the construction, the client became easily disgruntled about simple things. He thought we were taking too long for one thing, when I had originally submitted a proposal to him that defined how long the job was going to take. He asked for additional work and then thought the work wasn't being done in a timely manner, even though we were completing it within the time frame I had noted. He had, of course, signed our model disclosure notice and a contract or a mutual agreement with us. The mutual agreement had provisions, as I've noted before, that are critically important, defining how disputes would be resolved. 
Inadvertently during the construction, one of the crew leads excavated a deck footing in order to run an irrigation line through a difficult area. It was a mistake. He dug too close to the footing. A tempest and a teapot, in my view. He quickly backfilled the error, but this kind of thing you cannot do around a deck footing. I called and spoke to the deck contractor, and we worked it out quite easily. He reset the footing, and he charged us about $300 for the effort. The client, however, was livid and wouldn't let it go, even though we'd easily taken care of the problem, and it had not caused any kind of significant delay. Again, clearly, it was our error, but we owned up to it, and we took care of the business at hand at no additional cost to the client and with only a very minor delay. When the project was over, the client told us he was going to deduct a certain amount related to the deck, not any kind of amount that we had agreed to prior, nor had he even mentioned it. Nor had the deck contractor complained in any way about our work. The deck guy, in fact, went on to refer us in the months ahead. When the job was over, the client told me he was going to Cabo, and he wasn't going to pay his bill. He said, we could maybe discuss it when he returned, and then he said, quote, sue me if you don't like it, unquote. When he got back from Cabo the following week, I had placed a lien on his property. He was, of course, livid about this, but I pointed out that he had simply asked me to sue him, and so I was, in a manner of speaking anyway. When a client has their property lien for payment, the client's required in our contract to pay the lien fees in addition to the payment that is due in order to have the lien released. If you have a lien provision in your contract, and you should, it will likely have a time frame around it, within which you have only so many days, 60 to 90 days, depending on where you are, after project completion in order to file the lien. Be sure to understand this and operate quickly within that time frame. The takeaway here is that as a project manager, I knew the rules we had agreed to in our mutual agreement. I had asked nicely, and then I held the client's feet to the fire. You need to be willing to do that. In order to have a foundation within which to settle any client argument, you'll need clear and timely correspondence. Let's start the main part of our discussion by talking about some of the standardized templates for organization that you're going to need in order to start setting up your own personal project management framework. Probably the single most important aspect of your work in any capacity is to have a solid and comprehensive agreement. We talked about this in another episode, but I can't stress enough how much importance you need to put on the fact that you have in place an agreement that encompasses all of the facets of your work, from the scope of work through to the payment, dispute resolution, and any necessary warranties or disclaimers. If you haven't already, please listen to the episode related to contracts and agreements and make some notes around that. This is the single most important thing that you'll have. The next thing that's critical to organizing your time is, of course, to set up a well-choreographed schedule. I'm a big proponent of setting up a standardized and simple system that compartmentalizes your work into what I call the dozen things we do. We'll be talking about that in another episode, but for now, just take a moment to think about and list out the things that you are doing every day. Plug these items into a calendar and set them on a weekly repeat. Adjust as you go. Consider a Google or an Outlook calendar for this and a free task manager such as Asana. Regarding these dates, you're probably setting appointments and consulting with someone on a job site. You're estimating and coordinating suppliers. You're visiting project locations to coordinate work. And you are going to specific places to gather materials and speak with folks that help you to facilitate getting all of the work done. All of this is something you can be relatively predictable about if you segment the time in your calendar around it. Our company completes scores of projects annually. Personally, I might have 30 or 40 projects over the course of the year that I am personally managing. 
Usually I'll try to see each project at least once every other day. For me, these visits are in order, set up, checking progress, and then maybe spraying out a path and bed alignments after demolition and clearing, plant spotting, again checking progress, setting a client walkthrough, and finally scheduling a punch list. Cold season installs might have a spring reseeding visit and an irrigation startup as well. Let's take a break for another careening trip down memory lane. The second installment here evolved over time. We were asked maybe 10 years ago to renovate a lawn area. And as part of this, to install a Chevron type drain system. You know, the kind that looks like a emblazoned Chevron on a sergeant's arm. This kind of thing can be a difficult aspect of work to complete, not the least of which is that you're doing a good bit of subterranean trenching work that in the end yields an insignificant real visual improvement. When the work is done, everything had gone according to plan, and the client was reasonably happy with the project. I had instructed him clearly that it would take two warm seasons for the drainage to take full effect, and he was also asked to do a number of reasonable and easy maintenance tasks in order to keep his lawn in good order. Here in the Puget Sound, lawns don't really want to be here, and so we have to do certain things to keep the lawn permeable by aeration and liming in order to minimize compaction. Regardless, his issue was around drainage, and he was told that he would need to take a year and perhaps another warm season within which to see the lawn become fully corrected. A year later, the client still owed us about $10,000. He stopped responding to my emails and calls. He finally said he wouldn't pay and instead took us to court because he said the lawn did not look good. It took about six months to get from acrimony to arbitration, which is the preferred method that is defined in our contract and should be in yours. Prior to the arbitration proceeding, my attorney offhandedly asked me to go to the house and see how the lawn actually looked. I was stunned to find that the lawn looked like St. Andrews. It had been the full two years now, and the lawn looked fabulous. In court, however, the client was very argumentative and said we had done a terrible job. I pointed out that I had done thousands of lineal feet of drainage in my career, and we had done it correctly. The judge asked the client if he had pictures of the horrible work we'd done, and the client proceeded, to my absolute horror, to fan out a number of pictures he had just taken the week before that showed the lawn all torn up and looking like it had been hit by a mortar shell. These pictures were, of course, taken after my pictures were taken the week before, when the place looked fabulous. My lawyer let the moment sink in with the judge, and then he looked at me and winked and dramatically opened up his own folder of photographs dated the week prior and fanned these out. The judge was, needless to say, a bit upset to learn that the client had actually gone and destroyed his own lawn to make a point. In doing so, he was asked to pay not only the judgment of about $10,000 that he owed me, but also to pay interest, additional extras that we hadn't charged for before, court costs, and both attorney fees. By the time he was done, he had paid close to $40,000 on a $10,000 bill, and to cap it, he'd torn up his own lawn. The takeaway here was that I didn't fully understand the psychological issues of my client. I should have seen that he would be impatient and impetuous about having the work fully resolved to his liking. Although I had described it in detail and asked him to be patient, he didn't have that virtue in his wheelhouse. Thankfully, I had the sense to check my work as a project manager before plowing ahead. Without that, we would have likely lost the case. Oh, and I also learned that when you go to court, build a record of everything that you did for free. You can ask for payment for it then. 
You may not get it, but if the opposing party is a jerk, you might. Speaking of time and how to parse it out, I'm here in the Puget Sound, and I've segmented my own time between the western part of the region in and around Seattle where I live and the eastern part of the region near Woodenville and Redmond, which is where our nursery and garden center are located. I work at home on Tuesday and Thursday typically, and I do all of my Seattle site work at that time. I see clients on Monday and Wednesday and Friday on the east side, where there is typically more activity for us. Your situation may be somewhat similar in needing to be segmented by area, but the point here being that you need to choreograph specific times during the week that are best suited to each of your activities. I would submit that for residential design build, you need to hold your mornings free for job setups and crew coordination work. This is pretty typical. You might have a late afternoon recurring appointment for a potential client meeting when a client can be off of work, for example, or an early morning as well. You might set a specific time during the week to do estimating and planning. In this regard, take a moment to consider how you time the release of your proposals, especially with larger projects. I've said it before, but I think the single best time for a client to receive a proposal is on a Friday or a Sunday. Most married couples are together for whatever their limited time is, and in a quality way, mostly on a weekend. That is a time when they can discuss together the things they want to get done, and having your fresh proposal on hand is a good way to do that. If you send the estimate on a Monday, your potential client may be flush into their own personal battle at work and not be able to put any kind of eyes on your submittal. It's better if they can look it over on the weekend. If you're following up with a client for this kind of thing, studies have shown that one of the most anxious moments of the week for people is Sunday afternoon starting at around 4 p.m. Why is this? Generally, it's assumed that this is because the work week is about to start, and everyone is thinking about all the things that they didn't get done. If one of those things is reviewing your proposal, that's a time when it might be nice to send a gentle reminder. Heck, if you're a ninja closer, that actually might be the time to call. That noted, most good designers aren't great closers, and most good closers aren't great designers. That's just my two bits. But for most of us mere mortals, that doesn't mean that you have to be sitting at your desk on a Sunday afternoon to get your follow-up completed. In fact, you can set up an arrangement where your proposals are followed up automatically and quite easily in a personalized way and with a friendly tone that invites a warm response from your client. Let's talk a bit about all of how you can automate your follow-up. The critical move here takes a bit of time, but once done, saves you huge amounts of that precious resource. In order to automate your processes and to standardize your correspondence, the first thing to be able to do is to be able to talk an email and dictate your work through the dictate features in Gmail, on OneNote, and in Outlook. This speeds up your correspondence with your clients quite a bit and puts you in a position where all you have to do is a quick edit on your email to get it out the door and on its way. While you're setting up, you have to poke around a bit on the email software to find the microphone button for this and set it up on your home screen where it's easy to tab on and off. So take a few minutes to do that. In addition, learn how to schedule your emails. There's nothing wrong with having a generic follow-up that says, quote, I was thinking about your project and was wondering if you might have any questions. Feel free to contact me, unquote. You could use this almost any time, even if a client has given you the go-ahead or you're in the middle of the work. You can set these preset email dates in the future at any time and coordinate them to be sent perhaps on a Sunday afternoon, if you like. Secondly, and we talked about this before, you should think hard about what your correspondences are. 
that you send them on a repeated basis. These would typically be the response to an inquiry, an estimate with a cover letter, a claim response around perhaps a warranty or questions related to a proposal that was just submitted, the submittal of an addendum, setting up dates for a walkthrough, or a delay or a change in scope of effort that needs to be defined with a quick email. All of these types of correspondences can be pre-written because almost always you are saying nearly the same thing with very little variation. If you set your correspondences up properly, you can set all of these up and have them set to go. Both Gmail and Outlook have processes whereby you can select these pre-made templates and have them auto-fill your emails. This might allow you to very quickly resolve 75% of your work with a bit of additional editing needed to personalize the correspondence. Think about this by setting up first an outline of all of what your daily correspondences will be. Don't overthink it. Just think of all the general stuff that you do every day and make an outline and then flush out the emails around that. Don't forget to set up your auto signature as well with a logo and links to your social media, etc. Hey, I've mentioned it before, and I know this is not necessarily the answer for everyone, especially those starting out that don't have all of the estimating framework in place. But I think you can set up your own estimating and scheduling system. You can. Those that listen to our Landscape Office Systems episode will know I'm not a big fan of Aspire or LMN. I think if you look at the dozen things we do and you compartmentalize these things with unit prices and production using a margin multiplier, you can simply build your own estimating system that suffices for almost everything that you do. The fact is, you're almost always doing the same things over and over. We want to think of ourselves as totally custom, but even our most custom work is really a derivation on something that has been done before and can be edited to fit. The pre-made systems don't really allow for a lot of customization. I know the whole thing feels a little esoteric and remote, but the fact is you can build an Excel sheet that can accommodate all of these things and a Word document as well, that's a template, and use these together and they don't cost you a dime. Okay, let's go out on a tangent for the trifecta here and let me relate a story about a client that we had years ago doing a very extensive remodel on a waterfront property in an area of high-end custom homes near Seattle known as Maidenbauer Bay. The gentleman was a Chinese entrepreneur who spoke English quite well, but came from a very traditional family. He had asked that the driveway pour that we had subcontracted be upgraded from an exposed aggregate to a two-color stamped driveway with curbs and enclosed planters. This was an obviously significant extra for my designer on staff, and as such was about 40,000 or so in additional work. When the project was completed, I learned about the additional work and the fact that the client was arguing that he shouldn't have to pay for it. We now had a subcontractor that we owed close to $60,000 to that was pestering me for his due payment as well. In reviewing the documents around the project, I discovered, to my great dismay, that my designer had not even written up the addenda but had done it on a handshake. Needless to say, it was upsetting to see that we had no documentation around the work. The subcontractor, who knew better as well, and I had worked with him for many years, simply said to me, hey, I've known you for a long time, and when you ask me to do something, I just go ahead and do it. I don't need a signature. What could I say to that? I was simultaneously proud and horrified. In any event, we went to arbitration on it, the client and the company, and 
In arbitration, the client suddenly lost his ability to speak English and understand construction documents very well. This was all a ruse on his part, and the judge picked up on it relatively quickly. When we compared the exposed aggregate driveway look to the stamped and two-color concrete scored and curb driveway that the client asked for, he feigned complete ignorance and attested that he thought the upgrade would be worth the same amount of investment. The judge would have none of it and told the client he was being disingenuous. In the end, we dodged a bullet and won a $90,000 judgment against the client, and I learned a valuable lesson about making sure that all of my documents are in order. Our company records indicate that as much as 20% of our custom design build work revenue is gained through extras and addenda after the job is underway. Having the ability to quote this work quickly and coordinate it for approval and the legal record is a very critical aspect of any design build business and a key to your successful project management. One of the most common things that needs to be considered during the process of the job is to be able to simply and quickly coordinate addendas change orders or extras, whatever you might call the extra work added once a project is underway. It's important that your mutual agreement have a clause that allows for items to be approved by email and digitally. This allows you then to quote someone by email and have them approve it by email and for it to be binding as part of the contract. This is the most typical and easiest way to coordinate change orders and addenda on jobs as the work is progressing. Changes might be a substitution in material, an expansion in the scope, an alternate item that the client is considering, or additional plant material, or anything of this nature. Build a template in the email format that you can quickly edit, and don't forget the basic rules of business correspondence. This is that your first paragraph is always a friendly hello. Your second paragraph is the item you want to get sold or resolved, and your third paragraph in closing is the action you want the client to take in response to your email. If you follow this kind of organized three-paragraph effort with all of your business correspondences, you'll find that folks are writing you back instead of just registering the email into a file. You have to do something that has some urgency and can't wait for the client approval. Then at the very least, enter an addenda that notes that, quote, absent the client's objection, you're going to do the following item by X date, unquote. You may not be able to have that hold up in a legal framework as easily as a formal approval, but the important legal distinction is typically that if you have done it in the past and the client has made a payment on it, then your subsequent messages of this type will be more legally binding. This is the kind of thing that might come into play as you're doing larger work, and there are a lot of moving parts with some urgency. Or for a client that's traveling and not able to correspond as quickly as you might like. When you're building the time frame around your work and doing the estimating, it's very important to understand how time is affected by the crew of workers and the number of individuals performing the tasks, how talented and experienced they are, how reliable they might be, and the general access, weather conditions, supplier issues, and other difficulties that come into these specific tasks. It's all fine and well to think that these things can all be factored into an estimate, but they simply can't. Don't sweat it too much, but have an awareness around these kinds of issues in either event. And think about how long it takes to do the work that you want to have done. 
If you organize your business properly and set a high standard for execution, you'll find that you are not availing yourself to smaller margin work or time and materials work very often. You'll be quoting with minimums and unit prices that are set at a moderately high rate. You might be leaving clients delayed in getting an approval, hanging with what they think is perhaps a high price on a project while they go searching around for another contractor to no avail, only then to come back to you because they realize that you are responsible and reliable, and that being one of the main reasons that your work is set at a certain higher price standard. In any event, work with some understanding around your crew capability and capacity as you project the work forward. Don't butt jobs up against each other. And do leave some buffer for the work that's delayed or needing to be done because of extras that are being quoted. Again, we found that about 20% of our revenue capacity in residential work can come from extras that are not even known at the outset of the job. With this in mind, you would need to put an extra 20 to 40% of the time frame as added days to the project just to pick up these extras or items that were not able to be predicted. This is a difficult type of research to organize yourself around, and as such, you really need to give it some thought. Best to have a couple of heads knocking against each other as you work through it and build a framework that is somewhat standardized for scheduling. As we may be running 10 or 12 or more outdoor construction crews on just as many project sites, we also try to use an 80% capacity rule and leave a crew purposely open up until about 10 days out and then assign them just to take up any unpredictable slack or for when a crew lead quits to join the Navy, move to Vegas, or gets called to perform at a rap concert in Houston unexpectedly on a Monday without notice. Yes, those things actually happened. As an aside to all of this, some of us are also implementing plans that we've successfully negotiated from bids to homeowners or landscape designers that are soliciting multiple or direct single quotes. This kind of work can be a minefield for outdoor design build contractors in a number of ways. First, this kind of dynamic centers around a knee-jerk tendency to blame whoever is not in the room when things go wrong. The homeowner is said to have squeezed the budget by the designer and the contractor. The designer didn't know what the heck she was doing when she missed the step that's needed. And of course, the contractor should have seen the disclaimer requiring that every millimeter was measured when the extra ton of rock was needed. The professional parties, both designer and contractor, need to resist the urge to throw the other party under the bus, and this can be a slowly acquired skill. Whatever role you play, be careful about that. A designer that you depend upon for bid work can turn to others because of this kind of behavior, and a respectable contractor can wreck a designer's reputation within the building community just as easily. Anyway, that's an aside, but information worth noting. Let's talk again about some key dates that go into project management that you need to consider. These might be repeat dates that you put on your calendar and then you infill with specific projects as they're signed and you're trying to set up your work schedule. As I've said before, I set up certain dates for myself on a repeat basis and this seems to work pretty well. I can tell a potential client specific times and dates that we can meet going forward months in advance and they can choose among those days within which to meet with me. I also know that my mornings are generally free to set up jobs and if I don't have to set up a job I can take more time coming into the office and start my daily quart of coffee. Anyway, let's talk about some key dates that you need to be sure to include. 
First of all, there are job setup dates to consider to meet the crews on the job site. In my case, I paint out with surveying paint where things are going to go, and I discuss the plan with them if I haven't in advance, and I go over the proposal and the materials. This may be a few days before at our shop and should be generally, but what I've found is that time doesn't allow for this all the time. And many times the first time we're really going over it is when I meet the crew leader out on the job site and we point and scratch our heads together. Anyway, these setup dates are critical, and they usually happen for me on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday morning for projects. We rarely start new projects on Thursday, and almost never on a Friday. If you can't be there for the setup, then you should choreograph maybe something like demolishing or solder removal or some other task that can be directed over the phone, and be sure to let the client know that you're not going to be there until later in the day anyway. Permits and inspection dates need to be coordinated well in advance as well, and in some cases you may find that you are not even aware of the fact that you need a permit or an inspection until you are underway with the project. Best to know in advance what these things are with regard to deck and deck height, drainage, trenching, electrical, gas installation, wall construction, easements, and other restricted area construction well in advance so that you're not on the job site and looking at a red flag just as you're getting started. Hardscape layout dates are important. When the bed areas are all laid out, one of the key aspects of the work is to figure out the geometry and alignment of paving and steps and path areas. In my case, we'll usually have a plan for this, but even so, the plan can be thrown aside for a new alignment that comes to us as we're on the job site. We don't want to exceed any allowances for square footage overall, though sometimes we do. It's important to think of the plan as a dynamic thing that is somewhat changeable. I think that the clients appreciate this, and in our case, we send them over to the nursery on a weekend anyway to help pick out plants that we've already specified. I found this is a great tool for us and we can have a client take some ownership of the plant material and in many cases they'll buy more material than we've specified and generate their own extra around it. Figuring out the steps and wall heights is critical but in my own case I'll say a bit of heresy here and allow that we don't necessarily line level all of this stuff or run a laser level on it. In my years of experience I've found that I can generally eyeball this stuff and if we're building a wall from basalt or steps from stone, adding an additional step doesn't break the bank for us. We don't want to be too far off, of course, and as such, I can't say that I've always been able to trust my younger designers to figure it out, but this is part of my own curmudgeonly paranoia. Carpentry layout methods can set the stage for all the other work that's happening. With all of the issues around wood supply and cost changes, this has become a really fast-moving target for a lot of general contractors and design-build companies. The general layout of the carpentry and a framing plan, if it's been submitted for permit purposes, can cause changes and become part of the delay if it hasn't been figured out well in advance properly. There are usually inspections around this as well. Best to know when it is prudent to consider putting a deck in versus a hardscape paver or flagstone patio, and importantly, how this affects costs, not the least of which is the need for a permit or an expanded detailed plan or a delay related to an inspection. Construction dates around many facets of the work can be dictated by related aspects of the construction that affect another. A delay in an irrigation installation, for example, could affect adjacent hardscape. 
The trenching that's put in for irrigation might necessitate an approval of lighting in order to gain some savings for the client related to a low voltage wire installation. A GFI receptacle for a water feature and an open trench waiting for inspection could delay the completion of an adjacent bed area. A delay by a subcontractor for a deck stair jack not being installed could affect the final height of the finish grade of a hardscape patio you're building below. It's best to have a good sense of all of the ancillary trades related to your project and have a moderately good sense of how they're being choreographed together and how the individual aspects of the work, if not completed, will affect your own work overall. Planting dates can be a key issue on almost any size project. Depending on where you live, this can be a critical consideration depending on the type of material you're moving. Here in the Puget Sound, for example, we really can't be installing seed lawns between, say, Halloween and April Fool's Day. The first freeze date here is usually somewhere around October 15th or so. With climate change, we're seeing that date move later and later, but as I've said before, there are also key dates within which certain plant materials may or may not be available. You'll usually find that wholesale suppliers start to diminish their plant inventory after Labor Day, and many of them are very low on plant materials after Thanksgiving on until around Valentine's Day or so. If you're hoping to plant larger trees, they're usually not dug and installed in our region, usually until after October, and then only until the latter part of February or so. You can certainly do it at other times, but the trees are not necessarily readily available, nor is it advisable to plant this kind of material in the warm season. If you're planting bare root material, it's usually not even available until January, and then only for about 60 days or so. All of this points to being able to choreograph your plant material installation effectively and in a timely manner, and in such a way that it fits the scope of work and the time frame within which you're working for your project. It's something that is usually not considered on residential projects to any great degree, and it becomes really evident as we head into the holiday season after Labor Day. Plant procurement can become a daunting issue if you're a small business and working with few people to assist you. We've been very fortunate in assembling our business model around a nursery in which we have a professional procurement person gathering plant material and making substitutions based upon availability and meeting clients on a weekend to further edit the plant list to best fit the client's desires and budget range. For someone without this kind of benefit, finding a time frame around which to do plant procurement is key because there is so much new material, availability is inconsistent, and being able to make substitutions and alternates in size and variety can become an issue if it's not well defined. Perhaps having a specific time during the week in which you actually perform plant procurement is, an, is going to be an important consideration then for you. When the project gets close to wrapping up, I'll always suggest that our design staff set up a walkthrough with the client when the work is at about 80% completion. This allows a bit of time to put together the final push on the job and have a timely closure with the client. In most cases, I think especially with larger work, you can anticipate having a punch list with additional work to be done. This is not necessarily a bad thing and can open up the possibility for an ongoing and continuing positive relationship with the client. Discussion about the warranty and the final bill and everything else may occur at this time. Punch list execution is also important. Organizing a comprehensive and careful punch list is also going to be an important facet of closing the job out. I've always believed that it's an important thing during the walkthrough 
to try to find something that you need to fix. This seems counterintuitive, but if you know that you're coming over again to the project site anyway for an anticipated punch list, I think pointing out something on your own that you recognize you need to correct or alter to the client will reassure the client psychologically toward the fact that you are advocating for them and will help to establish trust with the client even more so. Another pro tip is to set a clause in your contract that requires that the client pay at least 95% of the remaining balance before you perform any punch list. This will allow you to get paid up to a reasonable amount when you're back ordered on a one gallon azalea for two months or you're delayed because of the season on a a lawn receipt, for example, and the client has a $20,000 balance due. Understanding the client's psychology is a key aspect to getting the whole project management system working seamlessly. There are so many different kinds of clients and so many different buttons that can be pushed in so many ways if you're not careful. It's very important at the beginning to understand what the driving determinants are for the client. Part of this, I think, is to understand what your client does for a living. You'll certainly have a different experience with a client that is an actuarial construction insurance accountant than you will with someone who is an abstract painter working from home. A high-powered software executive might have a much shorter attention span and approve things digitally faster than a retiree that used to be in the machinist's union. Understanding the client's decision-making process is a key to establishing your rapport and trust with the client. A high-powered executive that is going to be in Thailand for six months and wants you to just be completed by the time they return has a completely different disposition than a retiree that is watching every day from the living room window as the crew performs their daily activities. Some folks want to be contacted on a regular basis with some frequency in order to understand how the work is progressing. Other clients might be irritated by that. Understanding your client's general disposition toward your work and adjusting your tone, the brevity and frequency of your response is going to be a key to the success of your overall endeavor. Building an organized system around your project management will allow the work to proceed more smoothly and enable you to turn on a dime and handle unforeseen job emergencies. Think about planning out your calendar in advance and the structure of the way that you're working so that you have a predictable cadence to the work going forward. I am always sure to tell all my clients before the job begins and while everything is very friendly that we can absolutely expect something to go wrong. This could be stubbing your toe or invading Russia in the winter. Either way, you'll be ready. Thanks a lot for listening.